Producer Alan Spiridoff loves all kinds of music. When his fellow baby boomers were zeroing in on the Stones and the Beatles, Alan was adding Mitzi Gaynor and jazz to the mix. His long tenure managing Rosemary Clooney enhanced his jazz activities, and Alan carried on his Clooney tradition as the music director of George Clooney's film, Good Night and Good Luck. Today we revisit my 2005 conversation with Alan shortly after the release of that film. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Alan ventured into the world of music and theater early on. My folks were big music enthusiasts, and I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. The influence in music that I started out with was as a youngster, uh, we used to go to a lot of Broadway shows because a lot of them tried out in New Haven. So uh, we'd go there, or one weekend uh, at 10 years old, my dad took us down here and we saw Barbara Streisand and Funny Girl, uh, Zero Mostel and Fiddler on the Roof, and Buddy Hackett and I had a ball all in the same weekend. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that was the beginning was uh, Broadway music. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, did you see that you might be a singer yourself? Were you never. <laughs> never. Never tried singing or never? Studied piano as a kid. Mm-hmm. Never thought I'd be much of a pianist, but I knew music enough, you know, from that. Mm-hmm. But you didn't want to perform in any way. That wasn't something that you thought? No, actually, uh, my one year in college before I was whisked away to do road work was basically for me to study lighting, scenic design, costume design. I wanted to produce all of my my whole career. When I was in high school in New Haven, I was uh, producing one of my senior projects in high school was to produce three different shows for three different schools. So that was always my, my goal. Oh, that's interesting. So you always saw the big picture, too, and wanted to sort of bring all that together. Yes. That's interesting. Well, how did you wind up with Rosemary? People really associate that because it's such a long association. Gosh, it's a. It, I'll do the quick version. <laughs> it was. It was a. Um, I, I started on the road with Mitzi Gaynor. Mitzi basically took me out on the road early, early seventies, and uh, I in was, what capacity? As uh, at the time, I was assistant road manager and in charge of the sound for her show. I was production manager at the end of my stay with her when I went on to work for Ginger Rogers and basically managed and and production managed her shows for four years. And then when I was working with Ginger, I interviewed for a show called Four Girls Four. And uh, Rosemary was part of that package, which was at the time Rosemary, Helen O'Connell, Margaret Whiting, and Rosemary. So that's how I met Rosemary. You went right to the top. <laughs> getting, I'm thinking the people you got to work with early on, because you were very young. Yes, yes. At the time, uh, when I was managing Ginger Rogers, she found out. She said, somebody told me that, you're 23, that, that you are a 23-year-old child. And I said, <laughs> I can assure you, Ginger, I'm not a 23-year-old child. And I left it at that. <laughs> Perfect. Had you been a fan of her movies? Did, did this seem like a huge thing to you, I'm with Ginger Rogers? Or did it seem like this is a gig? I'm glad I'm going on the road. I enjoyed her pictures. I wasn't familiar with many of them. I will tell you that it was really a road job to begin with. But I, I get very involved with the artists that I'm working with. I learned a, a ton from, from uh, watching and working with the people that Mitzi Gaynor surrounded herself with, who were always the best musicians, always. And um, 
so I always paid attention to the music. When I was working with Ginger, she again used top guys and top artists. But what I was able to do when I when I put together a new production for her was to study all of her films, and I was putting together special clips. So I got to know all of that Jerome Kern, the Gershwins. I, that was I was saturated with it. Now, were you listening to jazz at the same time? What got you into jazz, specifically, or jazz-inspired kind of things? Because you were a real show guy. Yeah, I would say that the jazz elements, although most of these songs, a lot, uh, 75% of Mitzi's act and, and certainly all of Ginger's act, contained all the standards that are played in, j- in the jazz world. But really, the influence was when I uh, met Rosemary and started listening to her sing, and found that every record that we would do with Concord Jazz, which was in its infancy at the time, was with the greatest jazz musicians around, you know. That made you start listening differently. Oh, absolutely. I fell in love with you first time I looked into them their eyes. You got a certain little cute way of flirting with them their eyes. They make me feel happy. They make me blue. No stalling, I'm falling, going in a great big way for you. My heart is jumping, you sure started something with them, their eyes. You'd better watch them if you're wise. They sparkle, they bubble, they're gonna get you in a whole lot of trouble. You're overworking them, there's danger lurking in them, their eyes. When she was coming up, was she listening to jazz? I mean, it was the music of her time. Did she think... Let me, let me tell you why I'm asking okay. this, because I've talked to lots of people that would be her contemporaries. Okay. And some of them specifically thought of themselves as jazz fans. Others of them thought, oh, it was big man music. It was the popular music. So it's an interesting delineation. Let me say that Rosemary was the type of person that wanted to absorb everything. Mm. She never put down anybody's style of music. She really did like all kinds of music right up until, I mean, when her kids were growing up and listening to all kinds of things in the, in the 70s, the 60s, the 70s, in the early 80s, she would listen because in all music there's good, there are good things. She definitely was a jazz fan mm-hmm. because all of those great artists that she, used to, that she worked with, that she listened to, you know, Louis Armstrong and, and uh, certainly her hero back then, Bing Crosby, 
you know, led the way, and, and uh, she, was, she was definitely a big fan of their music. Now every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven over. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? Find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade them for a package of sunshine in flowers. Mm -hmm. If you want the things you love, you must have showers. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. Every time it rains, it rains pennies from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade them for a package of sunshine and flowers if you want the thing you love you must have showers so when you hear it thunder don't run under a tree there'll be pennies from heaven for you and me Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong on a 1936 recording of Pennies from Heaven. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with music producer Alan Spiridoff about Rosemary Clooney's love for Bing Crosby. What did she like about Bing? That's so interesting you say that because singers always mention Bing, and it's fascinating what they key in on. I know that she just adored this man, adored mm-hmm. the quality in his voice, mm-hmm. adored the fact that he made everything look and sound so easy, and yet his secret was that he would shed a lot. Uh, he always came into a, to a session prepared, very prepared, and he always came into a session like he did with the Bob Hope movies, where he would have a little something in his hip pocket to throw in while he was recording, either for the artist he was doing a duet with or just, you know, as a something special that, that would make, you know, Billy May smile or somebody that was in the room, you know. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you've worked with so many different people. How do you try to bring out the best in them? What makes a great producer, manager, all those things? And I think a lot of people listening to us those terms are thrown around, and they mean a lot of different things, what a producer really does. And like in, in your case, what do you 
What did you try to bring to Rosemary to bring out the best in her? Well, I, I think, first of all, to get the terms defined, a manager is really a producer. If, if the manager is producing the person's career, because a person's career in itself is an entire production. There are micro elements where you end up producing a record or a television show or a concert or many concerts. But, but the truth is, if you look at the overall picture, a producer, I mean, a manager is producing that person's career. And uh, it befuddles me when I see managers that take on many clients because I don't know how they could possibly focus on that many different careers. Now that's interesting. You didn't work for anybody else, but Rosemary, when you were working for her? Not when I was working with Rosemary. Towards the last uh, few years of her life, I did uh, take on Michael Feinstein mm -hmm. and created this nightclub here in New York for him. Quite honestly, at the in initial reason for my creating that club with the people over at Lowe's Corporation was to give Rosemary a place to work after Rainbow and Stars shut down. Uh, Michael's name was was important on it because he certainly is is you know in the in the genre of uh, Bobby Short and and one of the best at that, and so to have a club with his name on it was important for the city, but it was truly developed in my mind and 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 why I started this thing was to uh, give Rosemary an outlet to work every year in the city because she just loved New York so much. I'm fascinated because I remember personally this creation which sounds funny to say, of Rosemary's sort of last career, as it were. You know, we all think of her as that movie star and all the things she was doing in those movies and everything, and I'm an old movie fan, so I knew those things. But I can remember seeing this, and, and when I was first getting in the jazz business, I was talking with Concord Records. So I remember when Rosemary was doing her things and how that all developed. How did that develop? That's fascinating, because you were with her during that time. Was that a conscious thing that you had this plan that you thought... Let's put her with jazz musicians on a jazz label, because I don't think a lot of people would have put Rosemary there. She certainly isn't Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, I mean, other people that you might think of as real jazz girls. And she, and she never, she always said that she was not a jazz singer. Mm -hmm. She always said that. She said that I just surround myself with great jazz players, and I love, I love singing with them. She says, you know, I've got the words, and I sing the words. She never did anything in the jazz genre of scatting or, you know, any tricks with her voice like that. She just sang the song as emotionally, as interpretive as, as she could, and she was one of the greatest at that. I think that the question about whether it was a plan, when I joined her, I did have a plan, and it just took a little while to get it together and, and, uh, and, and to get it off the ground. But what, what first happened at Concord Records was Bing was asked to do something by Carl Jefferson, who, who started the label. And it was uh, a Duke Ellington tribute record. It was one of the first, I don't know if it was the first, it might have been one of the first three or four records that Carl put out. So Rosemary sang a couple of tracks on that, and Carl said, and by the way, it was Jake Hanna, the drummer, that actually said, you should have Rosemary on this, because Jake was with, uh, was with uh, Bing and with Concord at the time. So Rosemary then uh, did those tracks, and Jefferson said, I think it'd be a great idea for you to do a record for us. And that, What year was this? I would say 77, mm -hmm. something like that. I, I have it written down but somewhere, then. but around uh -huh. 77, mm -hmm. yeah. I joined Rosemary in 79 and uh, became her manager shortly thereafter. The 
old manager, shall we just leave it at, didn't get along with Carl Jefferson. Mm. And there was no record deal in place when I joined her. It was just the, basically Carl didn't want to make a record with him and he vice versa. So I reestablished that relationship and um, fortunately it lasted another 21 or 22 records. So, And what was special about that relationship? What did you... I know from listening, but I'd like you to describe it because I'm thinking about there's some young producer out there that hears a great singer and he's inspired and he thinks, boy, if I could only get together with that person or a great instrumentalist. What was it about Rosemary that inspired you to have a career idea for her that was tremendously successful and certainly not expected? Well, uh, in th- the way that it developed is what I mean. I mean, she's great, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. What inspired me was was Rosemary. I mean, that voice was so unique mm. and so emotional. Rosemary and I, I, I just became uh, part of the family. So that's part of it, wanting to help another family member out, believe me. And it certainly was, was a, a very important part of why I did what I did. I, I don't know if I told you this earlier, but I was, uh, I was actually married in her backyard in 1985. Aww. <laughs> yes, so I'm very, very, very close to her five children, and, uh, and I just adored that lady. But besides that, there was that talent that everybody knew was there. And when I first was able to... Uh, Combine her with an agency, a booking agency. When when I when I joined her, they were not. She was not signed to a booking agency. When I got her signed to a booking agency, it was a, a sit down plan at the time. I said to the the agents, "This woman is a legend. She's yeah, she must have been forty nine or fifty at the time, something like that." But I, I I my vision was that she is a legend, and it's going to take us ten years to let everybody else know that. Mm. But that's always the goal, the point. And um, I started out. The plan was I want to do everything that comes across the table that's respectable. But I mean, she had nothing on the books at that time, and so we took all kinds of benefits, anything that we could do to help people, to show people that this incredible singer was as good or better than she ever was. Mm. It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me So set him up, Joe I got a little story You ought to know We're drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my baby and one more for the road. I got the routine. So drop another nickel in the machine I'm feeling so bad I wish you'd make the music dreaming sad Could tell you a lot But you've got to be true 
into your coat Make it one for my baby One more for the road You'd never know it Buddy, I'm a kind of poet And I got a lot of things to say And when I'm gloomy You simply gotta listen to me Until it's talked away Well, that's how it goes And Joe, I know you're getting Anxious to close So thanks for the cheer I hope you didn't mind My bending your ear This torch that I found Must be drowned Or it's soon May explode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road That So starting in the early 80s, that started to build, and I was able to pair her up with uh, with Bob Hope for some very important touring and with Sammy Davis Jr. for some p- important touring. And, and all of it was a plan to get people to realize that Rosemary Clooney on her own is, uh, is quite a, uh, a viable legend. And she developed... From that point on, too. I mean, I know the records and how she changed playing with these different musicians. I mean, this isn't just an artist that was playing on her past. She really changed through the years, which had to be very exciting for you to see all of that. It was very exciting. I, I was fortunate enough to uh, pick most of the topics for the for the records and a lot of the songs. Rosemary would defer to whatever I suggested most of the time. And she was very quick to say no if she didn't like the concept. But I'm always, as a manager and as a producer, I'm thinking ahead as far as what's the next 16, uh, what's the next 18 months, what's the next two years going mm. to entail, and where, where do we want to end up at the end of that point. So it, it was important to know, for instance, we're working here in New York for another May, which is Mother's Day, Let's do a mother's mother's and daughter's record, uh, which mm. we did, you know, the September before in order to get it out for the May. Mm-hmm. So uh, that type of a of of a relationship really worked well because we could always plan together to do what was right for the career. And you talked about making movies as well. Now, when you're choosing music 
for that. How do you go about that? Because you said you're listening to lyrics and things, and and talk a bit about your movie now with George Clooney as well. Yeah, uh, I was asked, continuing the Clooney yes, association. Yes, well, it's it's nice to have friends in high places. Um, <laughs> George uh, and I met when he first came out to California to live at Rosemary's house. He drove his car from Kentucky to Beverly Hills to become a star. And, and he did. It. Yes. <laughs> um, it's that easy. Now we know. Exactly. That's all you have to do. Uh, he's, uh, he's quite a, quite a remarkable person. Not only is he yeah, obviously one of the best-looking men in the movies, uh, he is also one of the most talented I think his acting is equally as good as anybody out there. But the part that people don't know too much about yet that is just emerging is his directing ability. He is uh, – this film he directed, and um, it's called Good Night and Good Luck, and it's coming out very shortly. Uh, good Night and Good Luck is about Edward R. Murrow and the um, McCarthy era. And it's it's an important film, but George – I must tell you that uh, working with him was the greatest joy. It was as good or it was equal to any times that I had my best times with Rosemary. Wow. Yeah. He really knows what he wants. He really knows how to handle a 200, 300-person crew around him. And it's really a, a wonderfully joyous experience being in that, in that environment. George, it's funny, I was standing next to an AD or something that, that turned to me after about, he didn't know who I was, but he said something about three quarters of the way through the shooting of this picture, he said, he is the greatest director I've ever worked with. Wow. And this is an AD or, a, or whoever this guy was has worked on, you know, 50 Academy Award pictures. And it's just that George, he has a vision and he knows what it is. And um, he was able to... Uh, do that. When he called me, he called to say, would you work on the music for this picture? And he had a vision for what that should be. He allows you the freedom and the creativity to come up with some suggestions. And uh, truly, when I walked in the office door, there was only one song that was planned for this picture. He knew he wanted to do it live on the set, because in those days, in the early 50s, the Edward R. Murrow set, well, like uh, a news set, would also be used for a variety show that happened to be that night, which I think it's Star, Shower of Stars, something like that. And so during the day or during at another time when Murrow's not on or when the news isn't on, the variety show's rehearsing. Right. So that's, that was the whole premise of this. So we put a, I put a four-piece uh, jazz ensemble together and uh, brought in Diane Reeves to do the singing. And Diane does some incredible work on this. I, I think she is uh, possibly the, the greatest female jazz vocalist alive today. And um, she did a brilliant job in the film. And George, you know, was, was great enough to allow me a little bit of leeway in that he let us record all the songs that, that we had picked. And uh, ultimately, when he finalized the picture, uh, several more songs ended up in the picture. And it, it really... I think it's it's just a brilliant job. I really like what he's done, and now we're in the midst of um, finalizing the songs for the soundtrack, which will also uh, be out at the same time as the film. And you're doing all the music yes. for that. Oh, yes. that's wonderful. So yeah. there's lots of instrumental, obviously, as well as the vocals. And no, the interesting thing is the soundtrack is all vocal. There's one instrumental in the whole in the whole soundtrack. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's now, very unique. 
Is there music throughout the movie, atmospheric music? No. No. Oh, that is interesting. I, when you say that, I have to qualify that. Certainly there's stuff that's used as underscore, but right. it's all the vocals. Oh, that's interesting. That yeah. is there's, unusual, there's isn't only it? One, very unusual. I'm, I'm saying that, that George is such a creative guy that this is, this is what he's done, and it's, uh, it's, it's worked brilliantly. What did I do? What did I do? My tears for you make everything hazy, a cloud in the sky, a blue. How true were the friends who were near me to cheer me, believe me, they knew. But you were the one who would hurt me, desert me when I needed you. Oh, you, you were driving me crazy. What did I do to you? Diane Reeves on You're Driving Me Crazy from the soundtrack of the George Clooney film Good Night and Good Luck. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing, visit my website at judycarmichael.com. I'm talking with Alan Spiridoff, the music director of the George Clooney film, Good Night and Good Luck. For Good Night and Good Luck, I was fortunate enough to put together a great quartet, and uh, also for the soundtrack. The quartet on the set was uh, Jeff Hamilton on drums, Christoph Luthi on uh, bass, Peter Martin on piano, and Matt Kattengub on tenor sax. And uh, when we do the soundtrack, we will... Uh, have Bob Hurst on the uh, on the bass, and uh, the same guys. And I, I'm so looking forward to it. One of the best things was the moment we called Steinway to say, "Would you please send us a piano over to do the the new George Clooney picture?" It was there, and it was just a great, great instrument. And the quality when you hear what you what you're going to hear on the film, it's uh, it's it's fantastic. So. I'm very happy that that all worked out. And uh, to this point, which is almost done now, I'm, I'm almost finished listening. Uh, I've listened to over 2,000 songs mm. for this film to find the right ones. And he talked to you about this earlier in the movie process, it sounds like, because at, in my understanding, very often the movie's made and then the musician is brought in. Very often, because I've had people complain about this to me, that you'll have a director with real attention to detail, obsessive attention to detail. Then they tell the the person who's doing the score, okay, you've got a week. <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. <laughs> and these people are just as obsessive and just as interested in detail and making it perfect, and they don't have time. But he brought you in much earlier in the process, so talk about that. It, it's it's truly what I said before about his, his planning and his forethought. Um, he understands, especially musically. Uh, people don't know that he's got this incredible musical knowledge. I mean, and he, he doesn't. Does. Yeah, he doesn't expose it. He really doesn't. Is it, but he listens to music all the time. He knows music. He is he a jazz fan as well? Absolutely. I mean, he he grew up in a family that was all music. His mm. father, you know, knows every song done from the uh, from the early twenties on through the. Uh, uh, late 60s, I'm sure. I mean, he's a he's a, a music, not a musicologist, but he's had radio shows, and he certainly knows all the songs. And so George always grew up with music around him. 
his musical instincts are fantastic. But I was given the opportunity to start early with this and to plan it early, and I, it's a, it was a real, real fortunate circumstance because it gave me two to three months of preparation before we shot. And now, again, for the, for the soundtrack, you know, basically another three months prior to putting the, the rest of the soundtrack together. Mm. Well, it shows how important he thinks it is. He knows it is. As you're saying, he has such a musical knowledge. He knows this isn't something you should tack on at the end. Exactly. Exactly. That's and And what's happened in films today, as you probably know, it's not just the, the person that has to write the score, but there's such a fight to get songs in and you know let's let's put in the latest uh, i'll throw something out destiny child just destiny's child it's product placement and and there's so little consideration the directors have to be you know pulling their hair out at, at what they're fighting there in this particular case george knew what he wanted and there was no there was no argument from anybody the studio mm-hmm. or the finance nobody because this is what the movie is and so this is what it calls for mm. Nothing's impossible, I found For when my chin is on the ground I pick myself up, dust myself off And start all over again Don't lose your confidence if you slip Be grateful for a pleasant trip And pick yourself up, dust yourself off And start all over favorite instruments? I'm always fascinated with that. Some people just like to listen to jazz. Some people are big piano player fans. Some are sax fans. Or do you just kind of like it all and put on whatever the mood strikes you? I'm a... a, a, The first thing I'm not is a jazz snob. Mm. Um, If an instrumentalist is great, I love an instrumentalist. I love the piano. I love a great tenor sax because I was fortunate enough to work Early on with Scott Hamilton, who I think is, you know, one of the geniuses in, in my generation. Uh, there certainly were predecessors that uh, I didn't have the, you know, wasn't fortunate enough to meet up with. But I also was, was fortunate enough to uh, tour with Rosemary and the Basie Band for several years. And this was, you know, when Bill Basie was still alive. And um, to me... You know, I mean, to the world, there was nobody better than Freddie Green. Freddie was the man. <laughs> and and more recently, uh, you know, the last 25 years or 20-some years, uh, working with uh, both Bucky and, and then John Pizzarelli, mm-hmm. the guitar is, is of course, a, a favorite of mine. It's just been a great, great experience working with all mm-hmm. these great musicians. So the answer to your question is I, I love all instruments, and if they're played incredibly as all these guys do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you like all the swingers because i was thinking as you're saying it because the basie band great swing and scott and all of his groups just yeah. great swing music and I, I think the part that i'm not terribly enthused by is the esoteric mm-hmm. end of jazz i just can't you know i appreciate the talent mm-hmm. 
but I'm not, I can't sit there and listen to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm much more into what a guy, you know, an incredible melody and an incredible job interpreting that melody. Mm. Oscar Peterson. I love Oscar Peterson. Talk about Oscar. Oh, God, what a genius. And uh, I, I, I love everything Oscar has, has done. I cannot tell you what a hero he is after going through medically what he went through to continue his career the way he had has. Oscar, have you heard him in person since then? No. No. I have. Is it just... And it's, it's incredible. I heard him uh, one of his first concerts, and it, where he goes emotionally is so different because he always had the huge chops and the great locomotion. You know, nobody was more powerful than Oscar. But now there's some time to breathe and be very thoughtful. I was really overwhelmed with it. I'll tell you why I think that I would appreciate that even more uh, now, having worked with Basie when he was in a wheelchair, um, his notes were extremely selective. He was always a selective player, but, but you know, knowing that that's what you're saying Oscar's like now, I just, those people are just such geniuses. talking about how Basie was and knowing him those years and seeing how he was as the years passed and referring back to Oscar Peterson because this is a subject that's always interested me because I was fortunate knowing a lot of these older musicians as you did when I was quite young and seeing them in the latter part of their career some of them not doing as well some of them continuing to get better in my estimation, I knew it even as a 25-year-old and really locked in on that because the greatest lives and greatest, certainly greatest creative lives were ones that got better as they got older. And I watched how Basie did that as he had the arthritis, kept having fewer and fewer physical options of how he could execute his ideas and still figuring out how to do it beautifully and never seeming unhappy about it. That was another thing I really respected about Basie. It was really, and that's what I felt when I saw this Oscar Peterson concert. I thought, he's out there and by God, he's going to make some beautiful music and draw on something else. And I've seen other people who I don't want to mention, but you can just see how angry they are 
you know, why has this happened to me? Why do I have less facility? Exactly. And it happens to all of us. We all get less facility in one way or another as we get older. But interestingly enough, you've seen it in instrumentalists. It, it also happens to singers, and some singers like Rosemary, like Tony Bennett. They take what they've got. And the, I think the thing about jazz and about great interpretation is it's the experience that you bring to it. And the reason these people that you're mentioning and that I'm mentioning are, are better now is because they bring all those experiences, that all those life experience into that music. And I think it's just, uh, it's magical. It's great to hear a, a, an incredibly talented young person sit down at the piano and play an incredible song or, or jazz chorus or whatever. That's mystifying. However, you have to then believe that they've got some kind of old soul in them. <laughs> because, you know, to have the kind of experience that, that a Rosemary had or, a, or Oscar Peterson or, or, uh, or Bing Crosby or Tony Bennett, that's, that's something that they bring to their music later in life because mm. of all, their, all of their experience. One day we walked along the sand One day in early spring you held a piper in your hand To mend its broken wing Now I'll remember many a day And many a lonely mile The echo of a piper's song the shadow of a smile The shadow of your smile When you are gone Color all my dreams And light the dawn Look into my eyes, my love And see Wistful little star Was far too high A teardrop kissed your lips And so did I Spring 
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is producer Alan Spiridoff. What is the business doing to young performers now, and how do they avoid it? Or is it the business? Is it the environment? Is it what's popular? What, what's going on? <laughs> My own personal feeling is that technology, uh, if it's used properly, will always help enhance the talent that's there. Mm. I think what, what is happening out there with shows like American Idol, there, you know, there's more opportunity for more people, even if they're not so talented. Mm. Uh, but this has been around, you know, the American Idol format has been around for 50 years since the early days Actually, before, early days of radio, they had amateur contests, and uh, I don't forget the name, Ted, was it Ted Weems Ted, or Ted? No, it was, um, it's before both our times, so we can't, Ted yeah, Mack. Ted Mack, right. yes, exactly, and uh, certainly when television came along, Arthur Godfrey had it, you know, there were other shows that, that were just some sort of form that this uh, American Idol, American Idol is able to get to a lot of people quickly, and therefore it's a big phenomenon. Unfortunately... Because of the volume that they do, a lot of the young people out there are learning to sing like that. Mm. And I think that's, what's, that's what is not giving them the opportunity to interpret for themselves how a song should be, should be sung. I always like to think that this might not be as interesting for the audience, but uh, for, for, to find a good singer, you know, just put them down with a, a piano and a ballad and see if they can... <laughs> put it across. <laughs> That's way too hard. <laughs> They're never going to let him do that. You say that because you know how hard it is. That's very funny. Somebody loves me. I wonder who. I wonder who it may be. Somebody loves me I wish I knew Who it can be worries me For every guy who passes by I shout Hey, maybe You were meant to be my love and baby Somebody loves me I wonder who, I wonder who it can be. I'm a Peggy Lee fan. Peggy Lee was one of my greatest challenges. Little history, I started a show about mid-80s for Rosemary for her cousin who started a foundation in memory of Rosemary's sister who died of a brain aneurysm. And this was a brain injury foundation that, that helped uh, built a built a little facility to help people with brain injuries. And we put this show together called The Singer's Salute to the Songwriter. 
and I would I wrote it and I produced it every year. And uh, Peggy was on one of the shows, as was I mean, Ella, uh, you, you name it. We had we had a ton of people. We probably had about 150 stars in in eight different shows, and it was a great great experience. And talking to these people about what songs they're going to sing and what, whose arrangement, all the arrangers, you know, you appreciate great arrangers. Peter Matz was at the Baton for us every year and would arrange for whoever we wanted. Uh, Harry Connick, who hadn't sang with an orchestra ever before, when I called him and I said, would you do this show for us? And I said, the arrangers, any arranger, just tell me who you want. He said, would Billy May do one for me? <laughs> so I called Billy and he indeed he did. And I think to this day, Harry, you know, loves having that arrangement in his book. But we were fortunate enough to, to uh, have some great, great entertainers. And one of them was Peggy Lee, Miss Peggy Lee, who my challenge for, for her that year was, you know, she was in a wheelchair but didn't want people to know it. So I actually had to build a wagon to slide her out onto the stage and a living room setting on the wagon. And she was sitting in a chair as she sang. And... Um, it was quite something. Well, what wow. I selected here, you asked me to pick, you know, some of my favorites. I picked an, a Peggy Lee tune from the late 50s that I'm not even sure if Shearing was just on the record with her or if he played, if he actually wrote some of this. But There'll Be Another Spring is one of my favorite, favorite Peggy Lee records. Mm. It's a great ballad and a great hopeful song. Don't cry There'll be Another spring I know our hearts Will dance again And sing again So wait for me
I'm very excited because I'm not sure of this, but I would hazard to guess that this is going to be the first time that Mario Lanza is mentioned on a jazz show. I hope so. I do too. I hope so. Mario Lanza, again, when I had my little 45 collection, was one of those songs, the, the Donkey Serenade was one of those songs that I played over and over and over again from six years old on up. And it's stuck with me all of my life. If nothing else, I'm in, I am influenced by Mario Lanza and the Donkey Serenade when I'm working. <laughs> I think that it was a, it was, it's a great tune. It's a great tune. And Mario Lanza's interpretation on that particular track is wonderful. There's a song in the air, but the fair senorita doesn't seem to care. For the song in the air So I'll sing to the mule If you're sure she won't think That I am just a fool Serenading a mule Amico mio, does she not have a dainty bray? She listens carefully to each little tune you play See, see me, muchachito. She'd love to sing it too, if only she knew the way. But try as she may, in her voice there's a flaw. And all that the lady can say is you. Senorita, donkeycita, not so fleet as a mosquito. I wouldn't necessarily call it jazz, but, you know, if you broaden the spectrum a little bit, maybe he would fit into that. I, I think he certainly is jazz-influenced, or at least he influences jazz, because mm -hmm. look at, uh, if, if you'd get a chance to play a little bit of the Billy May Donkey Serenade, you'll see what followed Mario Lanza's version. Mm. that you have a broad list that you brought me today because I think so many people think they don't like jazz because they're confused by it. They don't know what a broad field it is and that somebody like a Willie Nelson or a Rosemary Clooney or any or a Mario Lanza, these people that you're talking about are Bobby Darren, that all these people, I think, many of them, 
what gives them that little extra juice is the jazz element, the swing or the improvisation that, that they've listened to or something like that. And you really speak to that. I love that. Well, I think jazz in our world today is truly about the people that experiment and stretch and interpret. And as long as you're doing that, you're, you're doing jazz. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Judy. It's great. Really had a great time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to music producer Alan Sviridoff. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. The opening music was my recording of Airmail Special, and the closing music is my version of Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about what I'm doing in my music, visit my website at judycarmichael.com. Special thanks to David Ida and Carol Phillips. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is distributed by the WFMT Radio Network and produced in association with Steinway & Sons and the American Hotel, Sag Harbor, New York. Visit online at theamericanhotel.com.